Hello, I'm Eric Sorensen, and welcome to the West Block podcast for Sunday, February 18th. On the show this week, Christia Freeland goes to Washington. As negotiators prepare for more talks on NAFTA, what's at stake? And is President Trump helping or not? Then, the NDP gathered for a major convention this weekend with divisions over pipelines and misconduct allegations. We'll talk to Jagmeet Singh about why the party with a new leader is not moving up in the polls. And the federal government will table a new budget in just over a week. Canada's big city mayors want the government to commit to spending now. But is Ottawa listening? But first, the next round of NAFTA talks begin a week from today in Mexico. How are they going, really? Before flying overseas this weekend, Canada's foreign affairs minister spoke to us about NAFTA. But first, here are different assessments from both sides of the border. President Trump and then Canada's chief negotiator. Canada does not uh, treat us right in terms of the farming and the crossing the borders. So they'll either treat us right or we'll just uh, have to do business a little bit diff really differently. They do not come to the table, our counterparts, uh, with a lot of flexibility. Uh, this is being driven to a large extent from the top, uh, from the administration, and there's not a lot of flexibility. It's being driven by the administration. Joining us now from Toronto is Foreign Affairs Minister Christia Freeland. Ms. Freeland, it's clear the U.S. NAFTA negotiators are driving a hard bargain, and they're clearly being driven by President Donald Trump. It's like bad cop, bad cop. What is the president's impact on these negotiations? Well, look, I think just as the Prime Minister here in Canada is the leader of our NAFTA negotiating team, uh, in the United States, clearly President Trump is the one who is driving the U.S. agenda, and I think that is absolutely appropriate. You know, when it comes to the state of the negotiations, uh, when the Prime Minister was in the United States recently, you know, he pointed out the reality of the position, which is we do, there are some areas where we have a lot in common with the U.S. position namely that we really want to support Canadian workers, uh, just as this administration really wants to support American workers. And I think both of our administrations really understand that in recent years, the middle class in both of our countries has been hollowed out. And we really believe we need to support our workers and not have our workers face a sort of race to the bottom when it comes to labor and environmental standards. So. That's an area where we have common ground. Another point that we've made from day one to the Americans, and, and I think they do appreciate this, is that at the end of the day, trade between Canada and the United States is almost perfectly balanced. In fact, the United States has a slight surplus with us. And that is a really important point that we just need to continue to make, and, and we are. It is also the, it's also the case, Eric, and again, we've been very clear about this all along, uh, that there are some areas where there are significant differences between Canada and the United States. Uh, the U.S. in the fall put forward some unconventional proposals of a sort that we've never encountered in trade negotiations. And what we tried to do last month in Montreal, and we are continuing to do in the lead up to the Mexico round, is to find creative solutions, uh, creative ways that we can defend and secure Canadian national interests, Canadian values, while also, you know, by looking at things a little bit differently, 
help our American counterparts to achieve the things that they're looking for too. And you know, that conversation really only began in Montreal, but I think we are together making some progress. I was in, the, I was in Washington last week and I had good meetings with Ambassador Lighthizer, uh, the USTR, the lead NAFTA negotiator, and also with Secretary Ross, as well as with some senators. And I, I would say we are having good constructive conversations. Also, this coming week, our Canadian negotiators will be having meetings both with, our, with their Mexican counterparts and with their U.S. counterparts. So, you know, we're all plugging away. Donald Trump has been president for one year now, but he won't be president forever. The Mueller probe will come to a head at some point. The midterm elections are coming. That could weaken Trump and the Republicans. Do these things matter? Because you don't want to strike a bad deal now and then be stuck with it for the long haul. You know, Eric, we will never strike a bad deal full stop. Uh, the Prime Minister has been very clear, and this is a view I hold very strongly, and I really want to assure Canadians that this is our firm position. Uh, we are not looking for just any deal. We are looking only for a good deal for Canada, and Canadians can depend on us to absolutely stand up for the national interest and for Canadian values. And, you know, look, Canadians are good trade negotiators. We always do our homework. We always bring fact-based arguments to the table. And, you know, I think our national culture and our history means we are good at finding creative compromises. If there is a compromise to be had, Canada will find it. But at the end of the day, we are not going to sacrifice our national interest. Is there a risk that Donald Trump will trigger the six-month withdrawal notice? And, and are you okay with that at the end of the day if it's just not a good deal? You know, again, Eric, what we have said all along, what the Prime Minister recently reiterated is our position is hope for the best, prepare for the worst. And we are absolutely prepared for every eventuality. Uh, we have not just a plan B, but plans B, C, D, E, and F. And you're right to point out that the President has on a number of occasions raise the possibility that he will trigger the six-month withdrawal notice. And I believe that we need to take the president at his word. So Canada is absolutely prepared for that. Having said that, our preference is to have a successful, productive, constructive negotiation and to modernize and update NAFTA. And we think there is a lot of positive there are, are a lot of positive things that can be achieved in this negotiation. The agreement, after all, is almost a quarter century old. And as we all know, the economy has changed a lot. You know, to give you one example, in the tracing list for rules of origin for cars, cassette decks are currently included, but rear view drive cameras are not. So there are lots of ways that the economy has changed and this agreement can be updated and modernized to take that into account. And I'm, I'm hopeful that we can do that. Donald Trump is not terribly popular in Canada. Does that strengthen your hand at the table or does that stiffen your spine, come what may? You know, Eric, I really want to assure you and I want to assure Canadians that in trade negotiations, my spine is always very stiff. Uh, we absolutely believe in being polite. We absolutely believe in looking for those win-win compromises. But in every single trade negotiation we enter into, 
we are very clear about the fact that we will stand up for our national interest no matter who is on the other side of the table. And I think that that's what Canadians expect. I, I think Canadians expect their government to be cooperative, to be collaborative, to look for win-win solutions, but at the end of the day, to also be very clear about the fact that we, we play for Team Canada and we stand for the national interest. The next round of negotiations in Mexico in the coming weeks, what is the biggest sticking point right now? Well, you know, I think it's a little early to say. Uh, as I said, I had good conversations uh, just this past week in Washington with Ambassador Lighthizer, with Secretary Ross, and with a couple of senators. And our Canadian trade negotiators will be meeting in this coming week with both Mexican negotiators and U.S. negotiators. So right now, we're just figuring out how much you know, what realistically can be achieved in the Mexico round. Um, Canada is really working hard, as we did in the Montreal round, to come up with some creative, you know, new ways of looking at some of the key issues that are on the table. And we're hopeful that we can continue a dialogue about those issues and, and maybe come up with some new ideas, some new solutions that no one had thought of before the negotiation began. Specifically, can you assure dairy farmers that they will continue to be protected by supply management because they don't think they got that fully with the recent Pacific and European trade deals? So, you know, I am responsible for the NAFTA negotiation. Um, I don't want to get in trouble with my outstanding colleague, Francois-Philippe Champagne, um, who is responsible for the CPTPP. Um, but, you know, let me be very clear that we are absolutely firm in standing up for the national interest. We are very aware of the concerns of dairy farmers. And I will say at this point in the negotiation, um, the key area of discussion um, probably, you know, the most complicated issue and the most difficult issue that we're grappling with at the moment is actually in the auto sector. And it is around the issue of rules of origin. Um, this is fiendishly complex. It is quite arcane unless you actually spend your days making cars or car parts. But it's really, really important. And, uh, you know, that I think is the area when it comes to the U.S. unconventional proposals, where at the moment a lot of everyone's energy is being directed. Ahead of the Montreal round, we put forward some new creative ideas around rules of origin. And in the time between now and the Mexico round, we have three weeks. Uh, we are going to, together with our Mexican and U.S. counterparts, and also very much with stakeholders, you know, with industry, with unions, we're going to be working on elaborating, developing some of those ideas. Now, Ms. Freeland, we're talking to you before your security conference in Munich, and there are a lot of issues on the table, Russia, North Korea, Venezuela. Is there one area where Canada would like to make an impact? Well, you know, Eric, I haven't given you my agenda for Munich, but it feels to me as if you've read it. Um, uh, you've listed some of the key issues that we're going to be talking to our partners about in Munich. 
Uh, I think more generally, we are going to be talking about you know, a, a broad issue that concerns our government, which is you know, maintaining the rules-based international order. Uh, that's something I think there will be a lot of conversations about. But on specific issues, you know, I will be having uh, some meetings on Ukraine. That's a key issue for our government. I was just in the past week in Lima meeting with the Lima Group foreign ministers and Canada there. The Lima Group foreign ministers is focused on the issue of Venezuela and really speaking up for democracy and human rights in Venezuela. So that certainly will be an issue that we raise in Munich. And of course, the question of North Korea and peace and security on the Korean Peninsula. I think that's something that the whole world is focused on and that Canada has a particular interest in. We recently hosted the Vancouver meeting on peace and security in the Korean Peninsula. So I'm sure that that will come up as well. Something that's very much in the news in the United States right now, I want to ask is how serious is the threat to Canada regarding Russian cyber espionage? You know, that is an issue that our government takes extremely seriously uh, and that I think Canadians take extremely seriously. Uh, Canada is a strong friend and ally and supporter of Ukraine, and we are leading the NATO battalion, the Enhanced Forward Presence NATO group in Latvia. So we are very clear in standing up to Russian aggression. Uh, and I think we need to be very mindful of uh, about taking care of the home front and in particular being very, very mindful of the ways in which there have been efforts to undermine the democratic process in other countries. And I really, again, want to assure Canadians that that is something our government is really, really focused on. You know, there is nothing more precious, I think, to Canadians. We, we care about the rule of law around the world. That is why we're standing up to Russia. There is nothing more precious than maintaining and consolidating and strengthening our democracy at home. And I think that's something we all have to be sure that we fight for. This coming week, uh, you will join the prime minister in India. We have strong relations with India. What is the next big step forward you want to see in Canada-India relations? Um, that is a great question, Eric, and I am really looking forward to the trip to India. I think that this is an important moment uh, in strengthening and deepening the relationship between Canada and India. India, after all, is the world's largest democracy. Uh, it is a very, very fast-growing economy, uh, a country with which we already have a meaningful economic relationship. Uh, it's our seventh largest trading partner, but I think that we can do a lot more both in terms of the ways that Canada and India work together in the world uh, and in strengthening our bilateral relationship. And, you know, after all, there are almost uh, more than 1.4 million Canadians uh, whose heritage goes back to India. And those strong human connections are a real advantage for Canada uh, when it comes to building our relationship with India. I'm going to meet with my counterpart, the Indian Foreign Minister, and I'm really, really looking forward to that. We'll have to leave it there. Minister Freeland, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure.
Welcome back. The battle over the Kinder Morgan pipeline is dividing two NDP governments, B.C. and Alberta. It's just one delicate balancing act for the federal party leader, Jagmeet Singh, who joins us now. Welcome to the West Block. Thank you very much for having me. So Alberta versus B.C., pipeline versus no pipeline. I don't know if it's a balance to be struck. Is it really not a choice to be made? And where do you come down on it? Well, I think it's important to frame kind of the, the discussion. If you look at it, Premier Notley is doing exactly what she promised she would do for the people of Alberta, defend the economy. Premier Horgan is doing what he promised to do for B.C., defend the environment and the coastline. This is exactly why we have a federal government. And really the responsibility lies on the prime minister and the federal government. And the key issue here is the process that was used to make the decision to approve the energy project was an old Harper-era pro process that was widely considered a sham where environmentalists weren't able to raise concerns, some basic concerns like whether or not there's any consideration given to the cleanup of diluted bitumen and how that's more difficult to clean up. There was not allowed to be any testimony on that. What should happen is the government, Prime Minister Trudeau acknowledged that this process is old and outdated and actually not effective, doesn't give people confidence. It should be modernized and it should be uh, such that the project is re-put re to this new process, evaluated with science and evidence, and ensure that the decision is independent and gives people confidence, and then we can move forward. So you sound like you're on the Premier Horgan side of this fence. I'm on the Canadians who believe in building a future that is sustainable for the environment and that never forgets that we need to take care of workers. That's where I'm on. Are you getting any feedback from the government? Do you think that there's a chance of that? Or, do you, or is this just, you know, this is what we would do if we were in power, but we're not in power, and so I can take that position, and that's a safe one to have within the party as it is right now? Well, we've seen that the government's already taken some steps in putting forward a renewed environmental assessment process. Just last week, they put forward some legislation around changing that process, which is definitely in need of being changed. So it shows that they've, they've received some of that pressure and are, are moving on the promise that they made. Um, but there's been some serious concerns about the process they're putting forward. It seems like a political process with, with the ability for the, for the minister to veto or to approve a project. It should be a science-based, independent, evaluated based on the merits and the concerns about the environment. And if those are all alleviated and, and addressed, then it's a project or a, a system that's actually accurate and, and useful. It, does, it, it sounds like, though, if at the end of that process, you would support a pipeline going through if it seemed to be safe. There are people within your party, the Leap Manifesto folks, they're saying it's time to move away from pipelines. Do it now. Let's be bold. Let's go into the green future. Let that be the new economy. Uh, that's not where this is going, even if we were to take the path you're talking about and about another review. Well, I think there's, a, there's two thing, different things operating here. One is we absolutely need to have a, a review process for any energy project in Canada. And that re review process needs to be one that Canadians feel confidence in, that there's concerns that will be addressed with the review process. But the second issue is if we want to build a future that's sustainable, we need to look at what is a future hold. We know that certain economies are based on finite resources, will not be sustainable in the future. And it's imperative for the government to, to know that and to make decisions to address that and, and help transition towards an economy that is sustainable, that's not an economy for the next five years, but one for the next 50 years, for the next 100 years. That's what I want to build. But that sounds like something Justin Trudeau could sit here and say word for word. Well, the thing is, is Justin Trudeau said that he would renew the environmental process and subject Kinder Morgan to it and didn't. Mm -hmm. He said that he would reduce emissions and has not reduced emissions. The environmental commissioner said very clearly that we're not on track to meet the Paris Accord agreements. We're not even on track to meet the Harper target set. So he can say a lot of great things, but has he actually followed through on any of them? No.
You're the newly minted leader, um, but if I look at the polls and how they have moved, if there was an expected bounce in the polls after your leadership, I have not seen that appreciably. What, what's the problem? Well, I think uh, my concern is not to look at this as a, as a metric of the polls, is to look at it as a metric of how can we take the stories of people across Canada and let their concerns be known. When people talk about the feeling that they have a betrayal about the changes to the electoral system they wanted to see, I want to talk about giving power back to people. When people talk about the feeling that an economy that seems to be working uh, and, and the numbers show that it's booming, but people don't feel like it's working for them. I want to talk about that inequality that people feel in their lives and how we can address it. My focus is on how do we uplift people, and that's going to be my metric for success. And, and yet we're not seeing anything happen, because the polls are also a metric for measuring where people are and how they feel about parties. Are you surprised a little bit that you haven't seen at least a little bit of a bump? Well, I mean, in general, as a leader, I know it's going to take some time for our message and our direction to take hold, so I'm not worried about that. But again, my focus is always going to be on people and how we can actually make lives better in Canada. I wanted to ask you about uh, how the party has handled misconduct allegations. Uh, Aaron Weir says essentially he was sideswiped by allegations that he could then not confront. There didn't seem to be anybody to confront about them. Has he been treated fairly? Uh, I think that fairness is really important, and this is a difficult uh, time because we have an opportunity to grow and we have an opportunity to address the fact that for too long women have felt and have faced so much uh, a silence of culture, a culture of silence, a, a negligence when it comes to the fact that women don't feel safe and haven't been safe in the workplace. So we need to do more. And I owed it to my staff to take a step when there was an allegation that was raised. But it has to be a fair process. It seemed like you, the response was a little bit uh, less harsh towards Peter Stoffer, the former MP, than it was towards Weir. That's a difficult balance in this day and age to just find sort of what is the pro appropriate response. And, well, we, and we're almost out of time. Oh, wait. With Mr. Stoffer, I mean, there's, uh, there's survivors who've come forward, and so it's a very clear pathway forward. Uh, and there's certainly things that we need to reflect on as a party to ensure that in the future complaints aren't ignored. You know, it was when I was not leader and when Mr. Stoffer was not a part of my caucus. But uh, with the current situation, I wanted to show that I care about building a better workplace and a better society and a better culture. And I want to show my commitment to that for the, for the people, for my staff that work in, in the party. Right, Jagmeet Singh, thank you for coming in and talking to us. Thank you very much. Canada's big city mayors met with the federal finance minister last week to push for their priorities in the 2018 budget, which we now know will be tabled February 27th. They want more money for affordable housing, transport, and assistance with greenhouse gas emissions. How confident are they that the government is listening? Joining us now, the chair of the mayor's group, Edmonton Mayor Don Iveson. Don, thanks for being with us. Glad to be here, Eric. So in a nutshell, um, what do you want? Well, we're actually, for the first time in a long time here, not to ask for more money, at least not to ask for uh, greater overall commitments, because with a $180 billion unprecedented commitment uh, to infrastructure, including $28 billion for transit, uh, and more money for green infrastructure, plus on top of that $180 billion, $40 billion um, much anticipated re-entry for the federal government into the housing business. Uh, we've actually got um, much of the commitment that we've been looking for over the last uh, several
several years. What we're here to talk about is making sure that a fair balance of that money winds up in the hands of municipalities, that money that flows through provinces, particularly for things like green infrastructure uh, to fight uh, greenhouse gas emissions, but also to make sure that the timing of the rollout of that money for something as simple as the repair of social housing infrastructure, that, that that's front-loaded. Because right now, a lot of the dollars take a few years to ramp up, which makes sense because there's lead time. Uh, but for something like affordable housing, we can get to work at uh, putting new windows and boilers and roofs on aging social housing uh, structures that have needed this infusion of cash for decades. And so we're here to, to help make sure that the design of the rollout of this money is optimized for good value for Canadians and an impact on the ground in our communities. And did you get uh, a response that suggests, yeah, yeah, we'll just move everything up uh, to suit your timetable? Well, I, again, all we were looking for in the case of uh, social housing uh, renewal and repair dollars was out of uh, the uh, the commitments that are already laid out over the next 10 years, can we move a few of them forward? And they're not huge dollar amounts and they're not additional money over the 10 years. So we, uh, you know, we made some, some very specific recommendations to government. There's still two weeks till budget, recognizing that's late in the process, but we've been making these recommendations in a unified way and this is one of the extraordinary things about the Federation of Canadian Municipalities you know we have a, a very very strong uh, lobby here in Ottawa and and government listens to it because it has added value in the in the things that uh, the government wants to create in partnership with local government and so we generally feel heard and it's just an opportunity to see if we can tweak things to be a little bit better I mean the federal budget comes out you know they have like four of them pretty much during a four-year term they know that they've got one more after this that's going to be an election year. That's the year you would expect to see some of these, some of this money would be flowing and would be obvious before voters go back to the polls. Do you have a sense then? Did they just take notes from you or do they, do they say, yeah, we understand you really do need some of this now? Well, we understand that we're governments too. We've got to balance different priorities. We've got our own cash flow and budgetary considerations. So I think the point is that they hear us and the fact that they've heard us so consistently over the last three or four years, even before the last election when, when this government and other parties were in the platform creation phase, uh, they were listening very, very closely to what municipal leaders, particularly big city mayors, had to say because those were the seats that, that mattered and those are the seats that will matter in the next election as well. But it's also good social policy to do the right thing on housing. It's good economic policy to reduce congestion in our cities by investing in public transit. And it's good economic policy to make sure that the infrastructure is there to support commerce and labor mobility generally. So it's actually good policy that we're recommending, which just so happens will make life better in Canadian cities, uh, which is good for everybody. Take us inside the room. I mean, are you competing for projects? Like, does, are you saying, look, Tory doesn't need three billion for a, a subway extension? We need money for the LRT in Edmonton. Well, if we've if we've achieved these advances, and it's something I think the whole country could learn from, it's that you know we may have minor um, differences of interpretation or jurisdictional differences with our provinces, but when the mayors get together, we really do bring a national vision. We we say often that city building is nation building, but to do that, we have to have a national vision for cities and to have a federal government that shares that vision for, for globally competitive cities that will drive Canadians' prosperity into the future and fill up federal coffers over time to pay for all the programs that are important to urban and rural Canada, to have that shared uh, higher sense of purpose, that allows us to not trip over the fact that uh, one mayor is building bus rapid transit while another mayor is building rail-based transit. We all need the transit investment dollars and federal government heard that and, and agreed to an allocation-based approach, which means the dollars will flow to the cities uh, with the largest 
large transit systems uh, that need the most significant investment. And, and we all agreed to those principles. And so you find remarkable unity around the table. And with that unity has come tremendous strength and influence. The, uh, the economy is beginning to change, uh, you know, interest rates are rising, it's going to cost more to finance deficit, you know, programs. Uh, do you have any sense from listening to the federal officials that, uh, that things are beginning to tighten up a little bit and you might want to, and that's why maybe you're coming forward with just give us the money you promised, but let's get it moving now? Um, it hasn't been part of our conversation with the federal government, but remember that, that municipalities are able to borrow as well, not for our operating budgets. We are by law required to balance our operating budgets every year, but for long-term infrastructure, we can borrow. So we keep a close eye on those borrowing costs as well because uh, they're, they're a factor in what we can afford, certainly. But, but because our, our fiscal tools are so limited, having eight cents of the tax dollar, and yet we're stewards of 60% of the, com uh, the country's infrastructure, that's why it's so important that the orders of government with, you know, 92 cents of the rest of Canadians' money really do step up uh, to provide the front-end dollars for, uh, for these major infrastructure projects like transit. That's why we've tried to shift away from this old third-a-third-a-third model into more of a 40-40-20 model, recognizing that 100% of the costs of looking after this infrastructure over the long haul and operating it, subsidizing, you know, the costs of operating a transit system, for example, that's all borne by the municipality. So uh, the federal and provincial governments have much greater fiscal capacity, even in a slightly higher interest rate environment, than local government, given just our respective tax bases. All right, Mayor Iveson, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. I'm Eric Sorensen. Thank you for listening to the West Block podcast. For more, go to our website, thewestblock.ca, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and tune in again next week for another West Block.